Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our late friend Terry Kohler told us about a story that we just had to bring to you. Blind sailing races. You heard that right. Sailing match races by folks who were blind. And one of those blind sailors, Walt Ranieri, joins us now along with the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan's director, Rich Reichelsdorfer. And thank you both for joining us. Great to be here, Lee. You bet. And let's start with you, Walt. Uh, Talk to uh, our audience a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, and when you learned you were going blind. Talk about those circumstances, if you could, for our audience. So coming from a family of six kids, four boys, two girls in Santa Clara, California, back when it was not known as Silicon Valley, where we mostly grew apricots and plums and things like that. I grew up with an interesting guillotine hanging over my head, uh, a retinal degenerative disease known as retinitis pigmentosa, caused two of my uncles to go blind, although when they went blind, they weren't even sure why. And then one by one, uh, each of my three brothers went blind, leaving me kind of standing alone. And then finally, 12 years ago, uh, at the age of 45, the guillotine fell and I lost about 95% of my vision in a quick five months, a very tough summer that was, and it has been spiraling down ever since. And, and tell me, you know, what, what was that like, knowing that all that time? I mean, did you know your time was uh, running out the whole time? You said it was a guillotine. Uh, describe that to the audience. You know, so how, how do you deal with with the following. Someone walks up to you and says, your, your right arm is going to fall off. We don't know exactly when, but, but we're pretty sure your right arm is just going to fall off. Uh, it may happen slowly. It may happen quickly. With that information, uh, at a young age, you don't do anything. You, you go outside and play. So I, uh, I guess it was known within the family, this is an X-linked version of this disease. The men get it and the women carry it. I knew you know, early on that, that uh, someday I might go blind, although when, where, and, and if were all still questions to be answered. Uh, those answers, that question was answered uh, 12 years ago, and, and uh, I often get the question, did you live your life with this guillotine hanging over your head in a way that would be different if you didn't have it? And, and the answer is, well, you know, probably sure. Uh, I, I, I've been known as the, the hyperactive overachiever type, and maybe that was as a result of knowing that, that I wouldn't have sight all my life. But to be honest, you don't think about it every day. It's like breathing. You don't think about, about breathing. You just do it. You don't right. think about seeing. You just see. And at some point, if it goes away, you know, there's a period of adjustment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite traumatic when it first happened. And and when when you were adapting, I I could only assume that the setbacks there. What kept you going during that interim stage of seeing and then not seeing? I mean, it's it, it's something we talk about in the show a lot. Is you know sometimes it's a divorce and suddenly you wake up. There's no husband or you, there's a, a death in the family. And in a sense, this was a death of something, right? I mean, it was a death of your sight. Yeah, I, a lot of people, a lot of people try closing their eyes and they instantly 
experience the anxiety and the fear that's associated with losing something quickly. And and yes, uh, that same anxiety, that same that same fear, that same frustration hit me pretty hard. You do have to adapt. You 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 have to keep moving. I mean, I. I read a very interesting book written by somebody. uh, The book was called My Eyes Have a Cold Nose, written way back in 1947. A guy lost his retinas due to a detached retina back when they really couldn't do a whole lot of back then. And and, and he wrote a very interesting uh, chapter of his book about adaptation and about how do you avoid learning to become helpless. There's a phenomenon in, in, in our society where if you receive too much help too early during an adaptation period, you can learn to become helpless, and that is not a good thing. So, so I, I struggled with that. I, I tried to continue doing things, and it all came to a head one day. I'm crossing the street, doing everything my mobility instructor told me to do with my cane, and I hit a rock that had fallen off a construction truck. And there was nothing I could do. I, I mean, I did everything right, but I, there I was laying face down on the pavement, waiting to be run over by a car, thinking to myself, is this the rest of my life? Is this all that I have to look forward to? And uh, that little spike of depression uh, was a very telling moment, a very pivotal moment in my life, the tipping point where a little voice in my head said, no, get up, keep moving. Because if we don't keep moving, you know, life's really not worth living. And it was really at that point that I decided to stop being a poorly functioning sighted person and start being a highly functioning blind person. And that was, a, that was actually that, not a aha moment, but that was that, that catalyst, I would assume. And that was just that turning point, I would say. Yeah, it, I mean, it was, everything got a little easier at that point when, mm-hmm. it, you know, trying to, to, to figure out you know, if the milk was was good to drink from the refrigerator, uh, by 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 doing what? By by putting some sort of notch on it or something? I luckily went blind right at a time when a wave of technological innovation was crashing all around our society and around the world. And now I I just take my smartphone device, I scan the milk, and it tells me what it is and when I bought it. I I, I, I scan lots of things in my house using the same form of technology and rather than 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 struggling it's actually easier well, I mean, well i actually hold that thought if you could we're coming up on a break we're going to talk a little bit more about your transition to well not being able to see and moving forward and then right to well blind sailing because that's why we're here this is lee habib and this is our american stories when we come back more on this remarkable story we'll be back right after these few messages
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Walt Rainieri, and we'll soon be talking to Rich Reichelsdorfer. And Rich is the director of the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan, and they host the Blind Match Racing World Championships. But we're talking to Walt, and Walt, let's continue where we left off. And during the break, you you said something pretty interesting that I thought our audience would want to hear about. But first, let's just dig into that that spot we had left off at, which was that that transition. Uh, Just a couple of more points to our folks about, you know, those those days. Obviously, the technology is really helping you. What about family and friends? Uh, How were they and how important was that? Family and friends were, were huge. First, yeah, I have three blind brothers who, of course, had gone through the process and, and, and were there in spirit and, and otherwise to, 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 to help. But what I found most important, what I found that was critically important in my adaptation to learn how to become a, a highly functioning blind person was to hang with people who absolutely prevented me from learning to become helpless. I had some really good friends who would not give me any special treatment. They, they, they said, uh, you want to do this? Do this. You know, follow me here. Uh, you know, providing the appropriate amount of assistance is, appro- is correct, but, but don't drag me anywhere. Don't, don't do everything for me. Don't, don't cut my food for me. And I think that was the part that I really helped from from climbing um, uh, Mount Mansfield in Vermont in the middle of the night with with a dear friend of mine who said nothing about how difficult it might be for me, just said, let's do it. And we did it. And that's the beginning of of a a lifetime now, well, 12 years of extreme adventures from, from Nordic skiing and in Sweden to kayak racing to sculling, rowing, bicycle racing in a velodrome, uh, and, and, and most recently with blind sailing and match racing. And had you been up for adventures like this before this, or did this in some way help you to become more adventurous? Well, you know, that hyperactive overachiever in me really likes the idea of pushing the envelope because what I found early on, so there I was, divorced from my sight. And yes, it was pretty darn traumatic. Uh, No matter how many friends you have around, no matter how much family you have around, there are going to be lots of moments when you are by yourself thinking about the rest of your life and what you're going to do about it. And that's, those are the tough moments. Those are the ones that you have to get through. You got to walk through that dark corridor to get into the large room at the end of the hall, because that's where the party's going on. And you know, for any one of you out there that are thinking that it's too hard, it's too difficult, it's too tough, well, I'm here to tell you, yeah, it is hard, but it does get easier. And there is a party at the end of that dark corridor. Just keep moving, and it's going to be a great time once you get there. Because what I found is that my walls started caving in. And, and you know, just sit there, close your eyes. And you're going to feel the walls are going to start caving in the longer you keep your eyes closed. It's almost a form of claustrophobia-like experience. And for me, what I found to be the most effective way of pushing the walls out was was to figure out how to remain connected with being a human being. And that is moving at the speed of nature, whether it's skiing or running or biking or sailing, 
moving at the speed of nature just just allows me to reconnect as a human being on the planet. And and when I'm out on the sailboat and I'm cruising around with no one sighted on board at all, navigating around some audible buoys, I am pushing those walls out, and and that's the part of it that makes it worthwhile. You know, we were talking during the break, and we had I had mentioned to you that we had done an hour on Al Pacino. And if you remember, Al Pacino won an Oscar for playing a blind man, uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And Pacino was asked by James Lipton on the Bravo channel, what was the hardest part you ever played? And he said, by far, being a blind person and playing a blind person. And he had said that, when you're playing it, you can always open your eyes again. So merely closing your eyes and wondering what it's like can't ever do it because the blind person can't ever open their eyes again. Talk about that, that story you told me back uh, on, the, on the sailboats, uh, and then we'll get into sailing itself, Walt. Yeah, so it's very common for people with whom I hang to, to do the little experiment, to close their eyes, to, to, to try to experience what I experience. And it's not really fair for them because, because they can reopen them. And because they can reopen them, their ability to adapt isn't very instant. And, and many times, including on a sailboat, people who are fully sighted, great sailors, world-class sailors, put on a pair of blindfold goggles, and within 10 minutes, they're sick, they look a little queasy because they, they don't have their eyes to equalize their, their, their inner ear equilibrium. Uh, they lose their balance. They don't know where they are in the water. And the fun part about it is the blind guys on board say, don't worry. I know exactly where I am. Just trim the mane. And, and it's pretty funny because, of course, at that point, they take their blindfold goggles off to recover a little bit. And I can, I, I can only imagine, you know, right now, everyone – Close your eyes and, and listen to the rest of this, and I think you're going to experience something very, very unique. No, there's no doubt. And, and uh, you know, often uh, when I'm doing the work, I do that anyway. Um, I've been taught at early time, especially in my business, that if you close your eyes, you hear better. Um, and actually, when we did an hour on Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles, both of them had, had talked about how their blindness in some ways served their musical talents. Um, and that one loss became a, a, a gain in another particular aspect and dimension of their life. And so let's talk about blind sailing, and then we're going to bring Rich in as well, and we're doing another segment because we can't help it. Uh, how does this even work, Walt? I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do this? I mean, I can't sail, and I can see. So I have hundreds of people have asked me this question uh, because I first I, I lay out the facts. The facts are... There are three blind people on board, no sighted people, and you are out on the water by yourself navigating around a match racing course. And, and, and of course, invariably, it's how in the world do you do it? And, and, and the answer is simply by listening, by using our auditory sense and feeling the boat, we listen for uniquely sounding buoys that are making unique sounds on the water, and one buoy means we're on the left side of the course. One buoy means we're on the right side of the course, and one buoy means we're, we're upwind or on the, on, on the upwind side of the course. And we have to navigate around all these buoys in a traditional match race format. So there's very little rule change from, from fully sighted match racing mm-hmm. to blind match racing, except for the fact that our buoys make noise, and thank goodness, the umpires call collision every once in a while when the <laughs> boats are about to hit each other. Uh, I have stories about that. 
And the idea of being able to feel where the wind is is not unique to being blind or sighted. Every, every good sailor will tell you, close your eyes and find where the wind is because that's going to be your ability to tactilely sense where it's coming from. And where the wind's coming from, that's the engine on the water. Mm-hmm. How you trim the sails is all about from the orientation of the boat to the wind. And it is a little scary. There is there is a little frustration and anxiety uh, when you're in a match race with another boat with three other blind people coming right at you when the boats could collide and and yet you, there's no special rules applied. It's to get out of a head-on collision. There are particular tactics we use, and they're the exact same tactics that uh, sighted racers use. And just we have just about a minute left in this segment, but I would only assume that in the same way that we have depth perception when we can see, you can actually hear the spatial relationships between those sounds. Does that is that what happens uh, when yeah, you're hearing absolutely. those sounds pushed out to your ear? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's as if I'm mapping a three dimensional board in my head with the with the sound when I'm on the water. At at any given moment, you can ask me where am I. I'll tell you where I am, and I'm doing so by imagining a giant playing field in my mind and I'm just putting myself in various spots given where I'm hearing other things going on. Well, when we come back, we're going to be joined. We've spoken to the the man who lost his sight and decided to sail and engage in blind match racing world championships. And next, we're going to talk to the man who put that event together because one sounds crazier than the other. And that's what we love about this show, and we love about America, and we love about the American spirit, and that is one of resilience, of grit, of perseverance, and just not quitting, and moving forward, as Walt just told us, just keep moving forward. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we just spent a couple of segments talking to Walt Rainieri. And what a story. And now we're going to talk to Rich Reichelsdorfer. And, well, Rich had this idea of putting together a blind match racing world championships for, for sailing, of all things. And, Rich, what were you thinking? Um, well, it, it, this past event that we did, uh, that we just finished up a couple of weeks ago, was actually... Uh, well, it's our second world championship blind match racing worlds that we've held. The first one was uh, two years ago. Um, and it's how we got involved in it, um, leading up, uh, actually, we our organization was um, quite heavily involved in the women's match racing 
um, in the uh, was it the 2012 Olympics in in London, and you know we were hosting a lot of women's match racing events, and um, you know our name got out there that we, you know we had um, a fair amount of you know a lot of equ- good equipment, and um, you know quite keen on on the match racing discipline, and I had. Um, I kept getting these uh, phone calls from uh, you know, international calls. I could see the, the country code popping up on my cell phone. And I just kept ignoring them and ignoring them and ignoring them. And then finally, one day, I just said, what is, you know, who's calling me? So I answered the phone. And uh, it was uh, a guy by the name of uh, Bernard uh, Destribue from France, who's uh, heavily involved in blind sailing. Um, on the uh, international stage, uh, he's actually one of the classifiers that um, will classify people, you know, to their level of, of blindness. And we got to talking, and then he finally he popped the question to me. He said, "Would you be interested in hosting the blind matching racing worlds?" And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, "Why not? What could possibly go wrong with that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it was, um, and that's how we got got involved with it. And then um, I didn't really think much about it, and we didn't really do a whole lot of planning. Um, yeah, and a couple of months went by, and then um, I got an invitation to um, go over to a, a blind match racing event in uh, Italy. Um, so I flew over there and spent a few days over there. And I was... When I got out on the wall, you know, I just followed them around in a, in a little boat. When I got out there, I was just thoroughly amazed at the – and then that particular event was the first time they have um, they tried the match racing without sighted people on the boat. And I was thoroughly amazed at the level of competition and the, the talent that these people had. And it got me thinking. I'm like, well, why – wouldn't there be a high level of competition, a high level of talent? Sailing is, you know, Walt has described this a little bit before, but sailing is, you know, it, it, it's mostly about feel. How does the boat feel going through the wind? How does the wind, you know, feel on your face? And um, and I just got to think, well, you know, why can't this happen? So I came back and from that trip and, you know, got our organization uh uh, excited about it, and then uh, you know the rest is history, so to speak. Our first event we had—I um, don't think Walt was at the first event—but uh, we had six teams from Australia, um, uh, Great Britain, Italy, um, and the U.S. And it was—it was—it uh, turned out really quite well, and everybody was really, really excited about it. Um, then leading up to um, you know, and after that event, we. Um, we're asked to do it again because we did such a good job. Um, so we're like, you know, for the second go around, we said, well, we really need to work on this and try to get more participation. And so then we, <clears throat> our group got together and we um, said, well, why don't we do a U.S. tour and go around and, and bring blind match racing to other parts of the, the country? So we Went out. Our first stop was out in San Francisco, and I think that was um, that's when we first met Walt. And uh, I remember it quite <laughs> quite clearly. We 
got all into the classroom, and, and we said, you know, by the end of the three days, you will be sailing by yourself. And they all laughed at us. And um, now look at where Walt is now. I mean, he ended up with a with a bronze medal um, from this past championship. So it's it's it it. I'm really excited about it, and I think um, you know we got a lot a long way to go and in building blind match racing and blind sailing in particular. Um, but I think good things can happen. And by the way, Rich is the director of the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan and uh, Wisconsin and, and the Great Lakes region are notorious for fo- folks who have not been in that part of the country for great sailing. And these matches, I assume, happened in Lake Michigan. Uh, is that where they happen, Rich? Yeah, they um, uh, in Lake Michigan off of our um, home port of, of Sheboygan. And, um, you know, they're quite close to shore. Um, so, you know, it's, it's actually pretty good spectator viewing as well. You know, I mean, people can stand on the piers and on the shore and, and uh, watch them sail. And what was uh, uh, the role of uh, our friend and your friend, uh, Terry Kohler? Because uh, he had ju- he's just passed, and he's been such a force in this country for good. And we love highlighting the, the, the philanthropic work and just the, the passions of, of, of people in this country. And Terry affected so many people's lives. Talk about how he affected all this before we head to a break here, Rich. Uh, Terry is a, a huge supporter of sailing. And um, in particular, our... Um, he was a huge supporter. Uh, in particular, you know, our organizations. And when I, um, you know, I brought the idea up to him um, for the first event, I'm like, you know, I said we're going to host a blind match racing worlds, and you know, he he thought about it and he said okay. Um, but he's, you know, his his support of our organization and our our. Um, our building of disabled sailing, um, in particular blind sailing, um, is you know has never faltered. He's you know whatever we needed, he was able to either help us financially or help us find the financial support that we needed to you know get the equipment and and travel and and um, and build a build a program. But yeah, that, that's you know, what, that, that's <laughs> what we discovered with him, and and you know that you would come to an you would come to a man like him with an idea like this, and he wouldn't say, "Are you kidding me?" Uh, quite the contrary, he'd say, "Let's go do this." Um, mm-hmm. And that indomitable spirit of Terry Kohler's will be missed by all of us. Walt, um, you know there were a couple of stories you hinted at, and we want to get to them on the next side. But that first time in the boat without anybody sighted. Talk to us about that. You got about a minute, minute and a half, and then we'll get back to it on the other side if you don't finish up. Sure. So the anxiety uh, associated with being on the water, steering the boat, because I'm the skipper of the boat, and wondering, because this is what we all wonder. I mean, please, no one driving, close your eyes. But that's what it's like. you're, You're driving a vehicle and your eyes are closed. So what's the big anxiety? You're going to hit something. Uh, and that anxiety translates into, you know, reality when you're the one making the decision. You go right, left, or go straight. You stop the boat. You, 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 you turn it around all on your own decision. And that's the part that is so invigorating, so challenging, yet at the same time so 
enhancing of the experience because no one's telling you what to do. It's, it's all your own instinct on how to get around. And that's the part that's, that's fabulous. Um, do you hit things every once in a while? Yes, you do. Wait till you hear a story about my very first race uh, in the 2016 World Championships with something that I did not expect to hit. But but that anxiety goes away pretty quickly when what your job is to get around. Well, hold that thought, and we're going to hear those stories on the other side. The man who dared to sail blind and the man who dared to sponsor and put together a championship for Blind Sailing Match Championships. This is Leah Abib, a quintessential American story. More after these messages. our American stories and we continue with Walt and with Rich in this final segment and we were talking during the break and Walt you had said you had you had sort of jumped in we were talking about Terry Kohler and it's just quintessential American attitude and we had gone to Terry early on when we wanted to do this show and we were a little nervous we weren't sure what people would say and Terry gave us this boost this confidence he said here let's go do this and he just he gave us some money, and he gave us something more important. He gave us confidence in ourselves. Talk about both, you know, Rich's influence in your life, Walt, because it sounds to me like Rich did for you what Terry did for both me and Rich. Talk about that. Yeah, Rich and his organization had a real can-do attitude, and if there is a quintessential American story, it's a can-do attitude when facing a significant challenge. Instead of all the things that could go wrong, that might go wrong, that maybe should go wrong, it's let's go do this. So Rich creates an environment. Rich and the C's organization with his staff creates an environment that's completely inclusive. In, so inclusive. So there's this women's world championship match racing competition going on and the blind world championship match racing going on at the same venue. And the blind racers come in there, and we we walked into the opening ceremonies as blind sailors, but we left the closing ceremonies as just match racers, and that has a lot to do with with Rich and with the Seas organization and with the inclusivity associated with the, the the whole sport of sailing, particularly when you're doing a lot of it by by feel. And when I started out. I had a lot of I, I have I had a lot of anxiety and and there was none of this. Well, okay, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Right. It was you know what, get out there and try it and see how it works out. And 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 the word addicting sort of comes to mind, but it's that for I mean not a, not every day in my life can I make all the decisions in such a a. A, a tremendous effort as as it is with sailing. I mean, imagine the idea, you know, uh, of, of of being able to conclude whether you want to go right or left, how the sails are going to be trimmed, whether you engage the other boat or not. These are all things that normally visually impaired people are told what to do. In fact, in fact, most of my 
day is, 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 involves a lot of people just telling me what to do. Avoid this. Be careful of that. Don't do that. And here's an opportunity to get out on the water by ourselves, making all these decisions by ourselves. And, and, and really, I credit Rich and his organization for for creating the environment in which we could go out there and just be sailors. Yeah, you re- you're really empowered in, in, in this situation and in this context. And by the way, you were talking earlier about, well, you know, in the end, there are going to be failures. There are going to be accidents. There are going to be bumps in the road. And again, this is the American spirit. So tell us a couple of the funny stories. I, I think you, you had indicated you had at least two about, oh well, th- things that didn't go quite right. Well, so there, I, so there I am in my very first race, and there's lots of you know buildup, and there's lots of uh, you know nerves and everything else because there's a lot of technique, there's lots of timing, you know we can't look at a watch. I'm feeling my watch beep and vibrate to tell me what time it is, and I'm about t minus a minute before my very first entry into my very first race. I tack around to come back to the audible buoy. And the next thing I know, crash, I hit another boat. I get on the radio and I go, I go, uh, uh, collision, collision, we've just been in a collision. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know who just hit us. Uh, what's going on? And it turned out, just so happens, that because of the way that I was maneuvering the boat, um, Rich, dear Rich, who is with us here, maneuvered his committee boat. He is the principal race officer was the principal race officer for the world championships and he had maneuvered his boat such that when i tacked which means you turn the boat 180 degrees when i tacked i tacked right into his boat and and of course i'd like to think that we have the right of way as the racers but uh that was a pretty (laughs) tense moment uh just before my very first race and uh the here's the part of it that Here's the part of it that really makes sense and, and, and for anyone who right in the middle of doing something experiences some setback, this is what it's all about. So Rich halts the beginning of the race. He resets it to, to, to square one again so we can start again because that was a little bit too, you know, too much drama just before <laughs> right. the very first race. Yep. And my coach gets back on, and it's and it's like here and now. So, you know, the boat's okay. We're not going to sink. Let's go. We get reset. My coach gets taken off the boat, and we go out and had a, a fairly decent entry. We crushed the start, which means we were well ahead of the other boat. And it wasn't, you know, there's no giving up. There's no, you know, we can't do this. It's, it's, it's add to the... Add to the story some of this this additional challenge, and it only makes it even better. That that in the face of all that that adversity, in the face of all those nerves and everything else, uh, you know, like like it's like falling on your, on your face just before a running race, getting up and 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 winning the race. That's the kind of stuff that that. Well, I talk about a memory for a lifetime. I'll have that from forever. Oh, you bet. You know, we spent some time on Mike Krzyzewski, and his most famous two words to his players are next play. Not the play after the next play, not the last play, not the play before the last play. Next play. And that just almost says everything about life. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I have to, I have to comment on that. Yep. So, we, you know, sports psychology is such a huge thing with match racing because it is such a chess game. It's such a cerebral game. 
you don't have to lift 500 pounds of weight. Right. You, but you have to do it mentally because that's what it's all about. And we had um, an opportunity to, to hear from one of the most uh, amazing match racing gurus in the world, a guy named uh, Dave Perry, who uses an expression to help you recenter yourself. And really, this applies to anything, anywhere, doing anything on the planet Earth. And the little expression used to reset yourself is here and now. That when you think you're getting off track, just say out loud the words here, here and now. It brings you back to the moment. Because when your mind starts wandering about all the things that could or couldn't happen, all the, you know, the other things going on in your life, when you get all that clutter in your mind, yep. you're not going to perform very well. That's right. But if you focus on the here and now, everything, everything gets easier, and, and, and you're able to just push off the pla- you know, that last play and move on. Yeah, Coach K is very philosophical about it. He said that what it does is it eases people's self-doubt and it focuses them on the present. And both of, them feed, both of them feed each other. They both oh, feed yeah, okay. each other. Okay, so here's a, here's a self-doubt story that I, I have to tell because, because uh, it also is a memory of a lifetime. So when, I'm on, when we're out on the race course and I'm in control of the boat, I, I, there's no coach on board. We're doing everything our, our own, making our own decisions. Now, when we're coming back into harbor, uh, we often have a sighted person on board in order to be able to navigate around other boats, buoys, the docks, the rocks, everything else. Yep. Well, one, one day we're coming back in from a training session, and I am, I'm on the helm, but my sighted guide is guiding me because the, the harbor gets very, very narrow, and there's rocks on either side. And there's this one, one moment where my, my sighted guide got a little bit distracted with something. Maybe it was something onshore. I'm not sure. But the next thing I know, um, I hear all the screaming. And I'm like, I, 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 no one's telling me go left or right or port or starboard. There's just a bunch of screaming. And then, bam, uh, apparently we, uh, I was guided right into a pile of rocks on the side of the harbor and I felt I felt one inch tall I mean I um, I'm on the helm I'm responsible for the boat yep. but at the same time it's a collaborative effort it's a co-synergy with my sighted tactician when we're in close quarters like that where we're basically one person and um, he or she can be moving around the boat but I'm I'm the one executing the commands and that particular instance, there was just a little bit of a, you know, uh, distraction or something, and and I felt really bad coming back to the dock because they have a beautiful set of boats. One of the reasons why the Seas Organization hosts some of the Olympic trials for the the London Games and for future games, I'm sure, will be because they have unbelievable equipment, great facilities, and every boat is exactly the same. So no competitor gets on a boat thinking, oh my gosh, did I get a lemon? No, they're all perfect. And I put a ding, I put a ding in the keel of one of the boats, which I felt really bad about. And, and yet, and that was before the competition. So, so, you know, yeah, good start. Out. Good start. <laughs> hey, well, so, look, know, I, we, we really appreciate this storytelling. We're coming up against a hard break. And we've been talking to Walt Ranieri, and what a story. And any of you listening, facing any kind of difficult physical circumstance, uh, Walt overcame one of the toughest ones and is living a robust life and doing crazy things like sailing and sailing in championship racing circumstances. 
And thank you so much, Rich, for all you're doing. And Rich is the director of the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan. And Terry Kohler, our dear friend who recently departed, was a big influence in both that effort and ours. A classic American story of both compassion and competitiveness all bound together. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we love to dig into the idea and the reality of the American dream. I think a lot of people think it's dead. I think a lot of people are trying to sell it such, but it's not. And we love digging in, thanks to Job Creators Network, into the real-life stories of folks who come here with nothing and build things. And it happens over and over and over again. It's why so many people are trying to get into this country. And not to Cuba or to China. By the way, we did a fascinating story about a Chinese-American who tried to emigrate to China just as a thought experiment to see how many people are actually trying to go to China. And it's nobody. Nobody is trying to go to China. And joining us for the hour to talk about his life is Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain in the Midwest, and that's car dealerships, of course. Bernie, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to have you. You bet. Hey, we start off, Bernie, every interview we do by asking folks to tell us about where they were born, who their parents were, and the effect both of those things, both their place of birth and their family, had on their lives. Yeah, no, for, well, for me, it's everything. Uh, you know, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, my dad and my mom uh, both uh, were obviously uh, uh, born in Colombia as well. Our whole family's from there. My dad was educated in the U.S., so he uh, uh, he got his uh, uh, undergraduate degree in college in Columbia, got his uh, medical degree in Columbia, and then came up to the United States in the 50s to get his Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania. And then my mom, who back then, you know, in, in the 50s, uh, most women, uh, you would never think about as going to college. Uh, my grandfather insisted that she go to college, so she went, uh, she came to the U.S. and studied in California and uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the time, the woman's equivalent of Stanford back then. Uh, so both my parents were educated there. They have a, had a profound influence on my life, my values. And uh, so that's the story. And tell me about the transition, because it's always so interesting to me to, to hear the story. I remember from my grandparents, one came from Lebanon, uh, one came from Italy. And I, oh, it always just fascinated me. That, that trip, because that, that first trip is, is tough. It's a real dare. It's a real act of courage, in a way, to just leave everything you know and go to a foreign land. Uh, what was that like for your, your dad and then for yourself and your mom? Yeah, now, as my mom likes to tell the story, she packed up seven kids in 23 suitcases and got in a plane, and uh, we flew from uh, Bogota to, uh, to Fort Lauderdale and uh, you know, started a new life. Uh, it was particularly hard on my dad. My dad was 
the dean of the medical school in South America and Colombia at, at the youngest age ever. So he was in his mid-30s, and he's the dean of, med- of the most prominent medical school in Colombia. Then he became what was the equivalent of the secretary of health for the country. And when he came to the U.S., even though he had all that background and training and everything else, he still had to get his residency. So he went from being you know, the palace of the outhouse pretty quickly. So he had to join basically 20-year-olds uh, getting their residency uh, you know, with midnight shifts and 24-hour shifts and things like that when he was, had, had been a, a pretty prominent person in Colombia. So he had to eat a lot of uh, humble pie, so we say. Yeah, and, that, and, uh, so, and so watching him do that was very inspiring. That is inspiring because, my goodness, it also tells you how much he thought this was a really good move for his family because when a, when a father's willing to eat that kind of humble pie, he's doing it for a whole host of reasons uh, and more than maybe you could even imagine at the time. Yeah, I mean, our, our American story is probably a little bit different than most. You know, my, my parents were very well off in South America. My grandparents were extremely wealthy on both sides of the family. My mom made a decision for us to come to the U.S. because one of the things that makes this country unique is that you are not uh, uh, driven by the circumstances of your birth in, in, in America. So if you're anywhere else in the world, pretty much, or you mentioned China, anywhere else in the world, if you're born wealthy or you're born poor, you're going to stay in that trajectory. Whereas in the U.S., you have to determine your destiny. And my, it was very important for my mom for us to come to the U.S. and be the determiners of our destiny. She didn't want us to be, uh, in a, she didn't want us to be in a situation where we took wealth and privilege for granted. So we came to the U.S. and rebooted our lives. And we, we came from, you know, a very privileged uh, background in Colombia uh, to being middle class in America. And what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing for your family to do for you. By the way, you know we were talking to uh, Mario Andretti. He was one of our American Dreamer series, Bernie. And you know Mario's circumstance, his family had had some wealth in Italy, in the northern part of Italy. But then came World War II, and then came Yugoslavia coming in to claim what was the family vineyard. And the fa- the father was asked, "Look, you can keep part of your vineyard, but you've got to renounce your Catholic faith, and you've got to renounce well." Your, your life, in essence, and swear allegiance to Tito. And his father's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And, and Mario and the family struggle for the longest time. He comes to the United States, to Nazareth, and just invents this life. And he said something interesting. He said, if I had grown up in Italy, I had some wealth. But in Italy, you had, you were, your class determined everything, and I did not have enough wealth to be a race car driver. But in America, merit, merit is what gets you where you go. Exactly right. And, and then, uh, you know, and my dad, you know, when he, he passed away three years ago, but, you know, he was the chief of surgery of the local hospital. He built a very thriving private practice. My mom had three real estate offices with 100 employees that she sold to Caldwell Banker. So we got to watch what people who are driven, that have uh, fire in their belly, who don't look at anything, any obstacles, anything other than something that they need to be overcome. We watched and witnessed. My parents climbed that ladder uh, from middle class to, to wealth, but on their own merit. And that's really, I think, at the end of the day, what my mom wanted to teach us. And it was it just left a mark mark with us that I'll never forget. I mean, she, she made us work from the time we were 12 years old. It just wasn't optional. Well, when, and, uh, when we come great. back, Bernie, hold that thought. 
When we come back, we're going to dig into that first job because we love talking about first jobs with everybody. We have Mark Cuban. We have Ashton Kutcher, Mike Rowe, you name it. And just everybody, we ask about work because work's so important. If obviously, your parents taught you a work ethos, no entitlement uh, in your family. Uh, in fact, they stripped it away by moving to the United States. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages with Bernie Marino. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Bernie Moreno as a part of our American Dreamers series, brought to us, as always, by Job Creators Network. Bernie, we left off uh, with first jobs, and let's, let's hear from you. You said you started work at 12 years old, and my girl's about to turn 12 next year, and that's when I'm starting her, too. What was your first job? Yeah, so you appreciate this. So we lived in Fort Lauderdale, and as you know, there's a big group of condos in, uh, in that area. And so I was a paper delivery boy. So at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, some guy would pull up with a van, pick me up at my house, and drive me two miles to what's called Gulf Ocean Mile. And then I would spend the next three hours delivering newspapers in, uh, inside uh, these big, huge condo buildings. And then I'd get back home around 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, sleep for an hour and a half, and then get up and go to school. Can you imagine putting your 12-year-old daughter <laughs> and some strange guy in a van in the middle of the night? <laughs> It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. You know, one of our favorite. week, by the way. <laughs> we have this uh, Lenore Skenazy comes on our show on parenting, and she got dubbed the world's worst parent by the New York Post because she decided that maybe her little kid, her, her child, uh, I think 11 years old at the time, could take the subway to school alone, and they just <laughs> hammered her for it. And I thought, Mike, this is what everybody did when we were kids. Right. Well, imagine what they'd say about my mom letting me get in a uh, van with some strangers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Division of Youth and Services would be – she'd be in prison right now, Bernie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about your 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 itch for cars. Uh, mm-hmm. When did you first get that itch? Yeah, so for, for – uh, since I was a little little kid, I could name every brand of car when I was four, five, six years old. It was actually a way I learned English. Uh, so I learned English watching Schoolhouse Rock, uh, watching Sesame Street, reading car magazines, and I just loved cars. Uh, my dad loved cars himself. Uh, he, he, his favorite brand was Mercedes-Benz. So I would go to car dealerships, uh, you know, ask them questions, go with my dad to buy cars. And, um, you know, my dad used it as a marker. You know, cars were a marker for him. Like if he thought he was being successful, he would buy a car that was just a little bit nicer than his previous one. And that was a really important marker that he used to, to kind of track his own progression. And uh, so I always knew I wanted to be in the car business. I just little kid, always just that was my dream. You just knew, and it, and, and it's interesting that and uh, you may be one of the only freshmen in high school to ever write a personal letter to the 
head of General Motors, telling him what was right and, more importantly, what was wrong with his car company. Talk about that. Yeah, so we had taken a history class. We learned about Wilson's uh, 16 points uh, during World War One to end the war. Yep. So I wrote, uh, I wrote Roger Smith the 16 points to fix General Motors. And uh, he actually wrote me back a three-page letter, one point by point. And uh, and then he, he he lied at the end. He said he was going to make sure GM was in good health when I uh, when I took over. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I want to read something that he did write to you. He he wrote this quote: "It's not often I receive a letter from someone who is planning to take over my job." Smith replied, "You are to be congratulated for knowing exactly what it is you want to do once you complete your high school and college education. I'll try my best to make sure that General Motors is in good financial shape when you join us 11 years from now." So you're right; he did lie. He <laughs> did lie. About that, yeah. uh, but uh, and, then, and, and so that letter, you know, inspired me to, to go to the University of Michigan because obviously that's where you go if you want to be at General Motors as an executive. I went there, went to work for Saturn Corporation, which is really his brainchild. I give him credit for that. And uh, that's how I started my career in the carpet. You know, what's interesting is we did an hour on the life of Henry Ford. And I didn't have an appreciation quite for what he and Rockefeller managed to do simultaneously. Because Ford was able to bring a car down to a price point where every American could own one. And but not for the spread of this thing called gasoline at low prices all around the country. What was going to power the darn thing? Uh, yeah, it was amazing that those two guys lived during the same era. And obviously, as you know, we live here in Cleveland, where Rockefeller made made his company. That's happen. right. And uh, it's it's amazing today, over a hundred years later, a lot of the legacy of Rockefeller lives here in Cleveland. Oh, you bet! With all the endowments, with all the the things yep. he left behind, you know, it's amazing, Bernie. Just a separate point that the average American kid doesn't know these stories, but somehow knows how bad these guys were or how bad these, quote, industrialists were. But but for these guys, there's no American middle class. No, absolutely. I mean, they were. you can't judge them by today's era. No. Uh, you have to judge them by the era in which they lived. But these guys created, created they helped create it, the America that it is today. You bet. And, and, Bernie, what was your first car? First car was a Honda CRX, a red Honda CRX. I read an automobile magazine, I'm sorry, a car and driver magazine about this new Honda that was coming out. Yep. It was $7,995. Uh, my uh, my parents told me I could buy any car I wanted as long as I paid for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I saved up. You know, again I'd worked since I was twelve. So when I was sixteen, I I had exactly that amount of money saved up. I went to the local Honda dealer. They had no idea about this car. They never even heard of it. <laughs> so I put a deposit down, bought the car, and uh, that was my first car. And every dollar I every dollar I made, I think eighty percent of the dollar went into into the car. Was the CRX the mid engine? No, it was a little guy with the, the rear hatchback. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I had an MR2, which, uh, oh, okay. which was a heck of a lot of fun to drive. And uh, did, you, did you get off the uh, sticker price on that, or did you have to pay full boat? No, no, no. This is, this is, uh, this is the 80s. Uh, I just aged myself. Yep. So Honda dealers would charge over sticker. Over sticker. So because, because they hadn't heard of the car, right. I was able to buy it for sticker. Shortly thereafter, they were marking them all up 2000 bucks over stickers, so I was very happy. Good for you. So you negotiated a good deal for yourself, too. too. Exactly. And uh, so, so now you're, you're, you're thinking about this thing called the car business. How do you get from coming out of college to doing this thing called owning a, a dealership? And by the way, car dealers are, you know, in any town, they're the lifeblood of a town. Great, good jobs, yeah, yeah. Uh, good connections. There, you can't imagine towns without them. But how did you? How did you do this leap? Obviously, you were not going to get any financial help from your parents for this. No, no. My mom uh, uh, made it clear. 
that the contract was we educate you to age 22, and then we really, really love you after that. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So, that's so uh, I, I graduated from college, went to work for Saturn Corporate, met a, a guy in Boston who was a car dealer, went to work for him for 12 years, uh, and, uh, and then out of the blue, 11 and a half years ago, uh, 12 years after working for this guy, uh, Mercedes-Benz called me and said, hey, we have a dealership that's very underperforming in Cleveland. Uh, it's owned by Roger Penske. Uh, we've uh, convinced him to sell it. Uh, we want you to buy it. And uh, I took every cent I'd ever seen in my life and mortgaged every, every possession I had and bought this one dealership that was selling 200 cars a year. And I uh, took that dealership, and this year we'll sell over 3,000 cars. <laughs> I was doing about $16 million a year in revenue. Our company this year will do close to a billion. And uh, we just took that one dealership and grew it into the company that we have today. And imagine this. Robert, this, for folks who don't know the car business, the Penske name is a pretty good name. So you're coming in there with no experience. This could have been the sucker sale of all time. <laughs> right, you, know, right. you know that, right? Absolutely. But you didn't Absolutely. care, did you? No, no. You know, I knew. Listen, I, I, I even said this to the Mercedes people. I said, if Roger Penske was the guy running that dealership, forget it. Not, I, Roger Penske could run circles around me. There's no question about that. The guy's an amazing man. But I knew that who was running that dealership was somebody who was maybe a C or D player. Yep. Uh, because it was such a small dealership, I knew that I could make a difference in that store, and that's what I did. Uh, and so I'll always be for, eternally grateful to, to Roger Penske for giving me the opportunity to buy that store from him. Yep. Like I say, he's, he's an amazing man, amazing story. He happens to be from Cleveland as well. But, uh, you know, we were able to take that dealership and just be very successful with it. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, a guy like him is happy for your success, too. That's the thing about the, the, the folks that I think are often mis, mischaracterized or maligned by the media. And that's, I think, business people. And that's half the reason we're doing this kind of show, Bernie, is because uh, American people don't really know what goes into starting businesses or who these people are. And now they're hearing your story and the risks you took with your own capital and your time, what was the key to turning that place around? Talk about some of the things that you did that weren't being done by the management before, before you. I think it, was, it, was, it all starts, and success all starts, and this is, again, ingrained in, with me, for, with, with, my, with my mom, which is uh, uh, you, it's all about attitude. The attitude that you have towards any objection that you have out there. There's, there you, can, you can buy into a million excuses as to why you shouldn't be successful. Um, there's something I call the immigrant mentality. And I had that immigrant mentality when I came to Cleveland to buy this dealership because I was all in. There was no plan B. There was no scenario in which partial success or s- small failure would be acceptable. So I knew I was all in on this dealership. And uh, as a result, I had to be successful. So I, I, if there was an obstacle, I just didn't buy into it. It, it just, you know, Cleveland's a blue-collar town. I heard that. They don't buy Mercedes in Cleveland. Just that wasn't an option for me. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that that was true. Uh, and so we just did it, and we, and we took exceptional care of our clients. You know, one of the things with me is that I love cars so much, like we talked about, but people don't love buying cars, which doesn't make sense to me. They don't love servicing cars. Yep. So our company's philosophy is changing that. And we, we think of it as how do we put ourselves in a customer service business where people look at coming to a car dealership as a really positive experience. What a crazy thought. And let's hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk about this thing called fans as opposed to customers. Bernie believes in that. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. 
This is our American Dreamer series, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and it's our American Dreamers segment, and we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers, and we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing, and Commerce Bank, and what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers he wanted fans and he even wrote a book about that talk about your stance on customers versus fans yeah we don't even call it we don't even say the word customer because customer implies a transaction and uh what we what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends and um and and we look at his clients because we look at a a long relationship with that client not just one car or one service visit and we make our team members realize that their everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship. Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people – uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school and the other Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. You know, it tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company that starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know those Ten Commandments and they got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty basic stuff. And I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because, folks, you know, when you're having fun, you, having fun ripping people off, isn't, it can't be fun. It no, can't be. No, absolutely. No. And, and, and so, and that, would be, that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire. That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that, 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 that I think and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this, I put myself through law school uh, leasing cars and I had just found that, that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates. They were calling these things money factors. They were selling the cars up. And all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency. And the next thing you know, I know, not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were so, so many of them were ripping people off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time: car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news: is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross, and we just make certain that we blow that bar away. Yeah, and I think Bernie that the 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 Saturn people were trying to get around that, but yeah. that that wasn't the answer, was it? No, because Saturn Saturn no Saturn had a lot of great uh, uh, things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the, they just never General Motors just never invested uh, money in making the car great. Right. So so had they made a great car, it would have been great. But uh, 
but you know, there, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago, so it was, and we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company. Right, but in the end, if you don't have the cars, um, all you know, the fan experience, some of it has to do with the customer contact. But in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too. Yeah, exactly. Because that that was the thing. The process was so strong that it carried Saturn for years, but eventually General Motors milked that product. And, and killed Saturn by not had General Motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development, Saturn would be the the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. But they they did the opposite. They bled they bled they bled the process down to nothing. Yeah, and and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just they can you know sometimes just miss it. And talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, as opposed to 20 years ago, and talk about some of your favorites. Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes-Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got, again, like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes-Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, – you're not, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> but in my case, I violate that rule, and Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're we're very uh, uh, bullish on Infinity. We think Infinity for, as a as a value luxury brand is a great great brand. And uh, and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors um, after the bankruptcy, they, those are the two strongest brands I think that that General Motors has is Buick and GMC. So we're very bullish about that brand as well. Well, that's fantastic. And you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you you give away your cell phone number to your to your clients. I, I would I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. So why do you do that? Well, you can't. This is this is I think the biggest issue that that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does. But there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great customer Every company doesn't deliver great customer service. Yep. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example, if I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give myself one ever? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? Yep. So if a client wants to get a hold of me and email me or send me or call me, I got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, "Well, obviously you're better than they are." And the answer is, I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, service means to serve, so I'm here to serve our clients just like our team members are. And you know what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, "If I can just get high enough up the ranks, I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either." Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what does that say to people? Yeah, it's it's really terrible. You know, we had the 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 head of talent uh, of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick Fil A, but uh, Deanna. I'm, I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name. Terrific lady, and she was talking about at Chick Fil A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out right. to hire folks. What are you thinking about? What are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to out to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for? Personality. You can't. You can't train. You can't train personality. You can't train morals. You can't train train work ethic, and you can't train honesty. Those. That's absolutely the most important thing 
uh, that you got. And then from there, the rest is just, you know, some teaching and some learning. Um, but if you don't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? How do you, how do you know what's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out? Uh, you look at their track record. I think you, you, you know, good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get, get into, their, into their history a little bit. But you can see it in their personality. You know, if somebody's attracted to my company in sales, for example, because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because, because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years of that client, that's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to right. work 45 hours a week, but with integrity and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock and not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, well, my goodness... A nice little empire. More after these messages. Here in my car, I feel safest of all. I can lock all my doors and there's the only way live in cars. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way. We love talking to American dreamers, because my goodness, if you're listening to this, it just lifts the spirits. I mean, imagine uh, working for someone who has the Ten Commandments, and the most important commandment is, thou shalt have fun. And by the way, this is the spirit of American business in the end. It's almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I, I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management and too much distance between him and the people on the, on the, on the ground. And that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And, and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have? That is a, that is a remarkably important point. And I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had... Uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and a chief operating officer and all that stuff. And it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. 
So subsequently, I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people who work in the store. And that has made a giant difference in the culture because the, cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah. Because typically those people don't, or at least in my case, they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company. Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in, uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he's brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket, and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, these, these basic rules work pretty well for me. And, yeah, there you go. and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the, the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them. But, boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. Let's talk, absolutely. About, let's talk about the government, and let's talk about, first, uh, things out there that, uh, as an entrepreneur, you wish might be different. If you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them? The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at it and saying, how do we support, enhance, and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies? How do we make their lives better? Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch, would, I think our, our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves. Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and the, right. and, and the, and the CEO. And, exactly. Uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees. You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean, there's well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of U.S. Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, it would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, there's been a giant seismic shift, one flash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. Crap, we got to fix that. Yep. <laughs> i got to get a business in the town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state, still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, if you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our fo- foremost important founding fathers, 
it talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. Yep. And that's it. And that's it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with like those Tea Party groups and this? And it, there seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life. And they didn't like it. And so they revolted. And I think now the American citizens, Tea Party, not Tea Party, are feeling like there's this big foreign government. But it's in Washington, D.C. But it's still foreign. The state houses, have, they can't print money. They have to hit a budget. The local mayor, oh, my goodness, he just has to get things done. And so I think that that gets to your point. And, and that leads me to this franchise uh, discussion. Um, t- what, what's going on uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners? And where are you uh, on this? I think the pendulum the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, it it, you know the, the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where like teachers unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. Yep. I think the, when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely uh, because that, otherwise you, you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, but the pendulum is definitely swung away. I'll, I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that, that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed. But I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a law that proves that thesis. Right, exactly. Right? I got to add value to the chain. So yeah. if Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships, God bless them, do it. Yeah, my dad was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the, all the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he yeah. was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, yep. so I'm all for competition, and, and so you can't you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. Right, right, exactly <laughs> right. Not, everybody else, that's great, but not me. And right. and thanks for taking that position because too often folks are for or are, are for business, like pro business. I don't want to be pro business. I don't want to be anti business. I want to be for free enterprise, and I want to be for competition because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly, and that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day, that day you leveraged everything. Uh, were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both? I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play, total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right. 
and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward. You got it. Yeah, you get. You can't uh, you, listen. You're gonna. You know, as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have lost, loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. And 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 do you have kids, Bernie? I have four kids. And 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 I assume you you you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that uh, that your folks did. Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do. That absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that oh, that's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. Started with his own money, which was money he saved. Started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Penske couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the, and get me if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now? A billion in sales, yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer series, and it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business becoming a bigger business, and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys that can change your town, and they can change the city, a state, and my goodness, we unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 